Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We are very glad that you have joined us this morning. We're going to be talking about a very important topic today, and I'm joined by Justin Constantine. Good morning, Justin. Hey, good morning, Linda. Always great to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. This is a tough topic we've taken on today and actually next week as well. It is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and chose a a very different approach on this program and next week's, which is talking about new research that takes into account specifically caregivers of the wounded, ill, and injured, and the incidents and the problem of intimate partner violence. And just like in the civilian world, this is a topic where people know it's going on, there's little reporting, there are repercussions to reporting, the culture is very difficult, and it is a, is a very difficult topic. So we are trying to shine the light on this silent epidemic affecting military spouses, but most specifically on this program, caregivers. Yeah, I, I, you're right. This is an epidemic. I, I wish um, I'm excited to talk with April today to learn more about the facts and figures and how um, what happens affects all of our society if we can get that deep. But you're right. No one wants to talk about this. It is a very touchy subject, but we need to discuss it. I, I agree. And I think what was so interesting is that um, and April will talk about her study. Uh, we are so blessed to have April Gerlach back and uh we had her on a previous show with Glenna Tinney, both of them experts in IPV. And PTSD, which is often one of the most common combat injuries, creates unique, complex relation dynamics. Now, everybody knows that piece of things, the communication, the engagement, the um, connection between family members. But there's also a problem with caregiving in that it can create a vulnerability, a dependence, and it's challenging for veterans to seek help. And it's also challenging for caregivers to seek help because they're dealing with some guilt about this person's disabled. What do I do? This is this is an issue. So the personal responsibility is really key. And, and I'm sure you have your perspectives to add to that too, Justin. Well, yeah, I do. And you're right. This this starts to get in a very complicated uh, territory because, and I'm going to focus on the caregivers who, uh-huh. as we've discussed on this show, we don't address, we don't focus on them enough. Um, probably never can. Amen. Yeah. And so I think that um, caregivers are often in really tough positions where they're taking on these monumental tasks without training, they're often isolated, they're dealing with someone who's been through something terribly traumatic and, and, and are suffering because of that, and um, they often don't have an outlet or, or good resources. And then, so, so they don't feel comfortable, I would imagine, they don't feel comfortable talking about a lot of really personal, intimate issues 
especially because they are caring for our combat wounded who we have put up on a pedestal mm -hmm. in this country. And so I imagine they feel like, well, who am I to complain about this? Um, this man or woman put their life on the line for our country. I don't agree with that mindset, but I certainly understand how it comes about. Well, I think it comes about as well from those who, if you report, but April will be talking to us today about while reporting is underdone, both in the civilian world with domestic violence and, of course, in our military world, it also opens up the caregiver to further risks and consequences, and many have children. There's a lot of consideration here, and I, I think that the culture itself, we will talk about for the this week and next week's program, the culture itself um, among the military, among DOD, among VA, it varies, and it varies per VA, and right. there isn't a lot of uniformity in terms of what is offered as help. Um, as you can imagine, with most things that, that people report, there are varying degrees of response. So I think it's time to bring in Dr. April yeah. Herlock. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, we're just so delighted to have you here again, April. April is a nurse practitioner. Um, we're calling this a working title, The Research Update on IPV Among Caregivers. And it reflects the work that she and Glenna Tinney did on a new book called well, it's not out yet, but soon will be. Intimacy Post-Injury, Combat Trauma and Sexual Health, edited by Elspeth Ritchie. And April, welcome again to Military Network Radio. Thank you, Linda. I'm glad to be back. Well, we are delighted to have you. And so, Justin, I believe you have the first question. Well, yeah, let's just start off with a, a broad, broad question, April. How prevalent is intimate partner violence in the veteran community, and does it affect men as well as women? Uh, yes. Actually, that's a, that's a good question. It depends on who's doing the research and who's your, who you are asking. It's highly variable across studies in terms of what is reported. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's fairly prevalent in our research. We were looking at um, the study actually was on veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And we were looking at the detection of intimate partner violence in, the, in a clinical sample. So these were veterans in treatment for PTSD. And our rate was pretty high. We we define intimate partner violence for our study as having used physical or sexual force or credible threat, like displaying a weapon or threatening with a knife, that sort of thing. And then a pattern of psychologically abusive behaviors and a coercive behaviors. So making threats, intimidating the wife or spouse, yeah. um, that sort of thing. And so, so we had a very specific definition. We, we didn't want to capture, let's say, an aggressive act that was just part of a PTSD symptom yeah. because part of PTSD is, you know, you can see irritability and aggression. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to just capture that and call it IPV. We really were looking at more than just aggression. We were looking at this other intimidating, coercive behavior along with that. And in our sample... Um, the rate was about 45% uh, of the veterans who were in treatment, we also considered were engaging in intimate partner violence. So that was pretty high. It sounds very high. Yes. 
you know, April, that, that brings to mind a question. If someone knows that they're participating in a clinical study, wouldn't this also skew on the conservative side because they know they're under observation? Well, you would think so. It was very interesting. We had, because it was research, we had a very high level of confidentiality. So we had certificates of confidentiality. Um, the What the veterans and their spouses told us was, was very private. We have had a safety protocol in place for for any reported situation that could be dangerous for anyone in the family. Uh, and, but the veterans and their wives, or we included um, partners, girlfriends, this was a heterosexual couple, mm-hmm. were amazingly open with information. And I would say the veterans were just as open in talking with us as their wives were about what was going on. And so we were very impressed with their candidness uh, to our questions. And, you know, the, the, the research was specifically looking at, you know, how these couples dealt with PTSD behaviors and how they handled conflict. And so, you know, we were trying to detect intimate partner violence because we realized that not obviously not everybody with PTSD is violent or intimately violent, and most of our sample wasn't. So we wanted to try and better understand that. The research wasn't on caregiving, but it was interesting that in listening to the veterans and their wives, in terms of their narratives, caregiving became intertwined in everything they talked about, about post-traumatic stress disorder, how they communicated, um, you know, just all of those aspects that had to do with caregiving. The IPV piece, when, when it was present, was intertwined. We couldn't pull it out as um, as standing alone. It impacted the caregiving, and both the veterans and their their spouses were aware of that. That's very frightening because in recent caregiver summits, in all of the years of working with thousands of caregivers, there have been incidents of IPV that we've worked with and helped, but not at the prevalence that you're talking about. So what that implies is that there is the silent epidemic of a much greater number of people involved, especially caregivers, than we originally anticipated. Is that valid? I think it is larger than what people suspect. And I think as Justin was talking about, is there's a, you know, well, well, we could um, generalize this to the general population because, you know, anybody where there's IPV and there's caregiving, there's going to be these issues. But there were some specific issues that had to do with being a veteran. And I think his point is really valid in terms of um, they are the veteran, in this case, maybe disabled veteran. Um, they served their country. Some of these people had multiple tours over multiple war zones. Uh, there is a certain sense of responsibility and obligation to the veteran um, that I think impacts the caregivers in a way that maybe we don't see uh, for people who haven't served. And so I think there was this extra piece in addition to our, as a VA provider, our expectations of the caregivers that they are critical in the veteran getting their care. So we really rely on them heavily to get the veteran to appointments, to make sure the veteran's taking their medications, um, all of those sorts of things. Um, So there were those pieces that I thought there were some unique aspects to caregiving and 
military in, uh, specifically. So very interestingly, we take an already challenging job of caregiving, often 24-7 with not just PTSD, but TBI and other uh, conditions. And then we add onto it this layer of intimate partner violence potential. So fascinating. We will continue further after the break. We are talking with um, April Gerlach. I'm sorry, I'm just so caught up in this topic. April Gerlach, and we'll be back after these short messages. Thank you for listening. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Does music give us chills? Goosebumps, or the medical term repletion, occurs while listening to music. That's because music stimulates a reward pathway in the brain, encouraging dopamine to flood the striatum, a part of the forebrain activated by addiction, reward, and motivation. Melomaniacs or passionate music lovers can get the chills from songs they are familiar with as they anticipate that long-awaited chord at the climax of the piece. Music, it seems, affects our brains the same way that chocolate gambling and potato chips do. I think I may need to stick to chocolate and potato chips because I tried piano lessons and I felt like a goose noodles. What's a word for a person who dislikes practicing the piano? A mesodactocletus. I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with April Gerlach about intimate partner violence, caregiving, and the prevalence of something that is not talked about terribly often. On the break, we were talking about uh, there are certain symptoms of PTSD that seem to jump out more than others. But from your study, what are the aspects and symptoms of PTSD that were most problematic for the spouses, the caregivers, and the children in the family that you studied? Yeah, for our couples, the thing that came out that were identified as having the most significant impact were these PTSD-related symptoms, avoidance, uh, emotional numbing, depression, a heightened need for control, hypervigilance, self-harm and risk-taking, aggression and self-medication. Those were the 
those were the ones that stood out as having the, the most really a negative impact on the relationship. How could it not? Right. Goodness. Yeah, it, it seems like, of course, they would. Uh, and I can relate to some of those. Not not the last few, but um, just the, the PTSD that I, or the symptoms that I struggled with for a while, especially the hypervigilance, the uh, mm-hmm. trouble sleeping at night because of nightmares, and then the control factors, um, which is kind of what pushed me towards going to uh, PTSD counseling because it was negatively affecting my relationship. And fortunately, I'm in a re- relationship where Dahlia knew a lot about PTSD already and was able to help me uh, feel comfortable with it. But I imagine most veterans aren't in that same situation. Right. You're, you're, you're correct. In fact, their avoidance in terms of talking about what was going on with them um, really then created this whole secrecy around uh, their symptoms, uh, what they did in the military that that was related to this, you know, their trauma, that sort of thing. And so that really interfered with their communication. And it was difficult yeah. for the partners to determine in, in the cases where there was intimate partner violence, what was what's the difference between these PTSD symptoms and intimate partner violence? Um, and some of some of the partners, I want to point out, this was heterosexual couples, and some of the women were also veterans. So so we had dual, you know, veterans in our study. In terms of some of the women were also uh, service connected, and some of them had PTSD as well. And well, let's take a step back as we're talking about the people in your survey. Just describe for our listeners how how big your survey was and how you how you conducted it. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, what we did is we randomly selected veterans, male veterans who were actively engaged in PTSD treatment at several sites, including a, a vet center. And if they were in a committed intimate relationship for at least a year, then they were eligible for the study. So uh, over the course of a, of a few years, we interviewed 441 couples. So we did 882 interviews. So it was a very large group. Um, we had uh, really good participation in terms of the study. As some of the, the examples that I give, and, and we also have published this research, those narratives were taken from a, a focused, another type of study, a qualitative study on a focused sample within this sample uh, to give examples of how these issues played out for these couples, for some you know, of the couples. You know, April, it's interesting. Um, it Was there a pattern developed about why some had this or some didn't? Did it have anything to do with prior history in the family? Was there any common thread that was able to possibly pre-identify people predisposed to IBV if they had PTSD? Well, there are certain risk factors. Um, Growing up in a home where there's IPV is one of the risk factors that's identified uh, in terms of someone then later in their life, either becoming a an aggressor or a victim of IPV. So that's one of the risk factors. Other kinds of risk factors that were related, there's a lot of research looking at substance misuse and abuse. Mm-hmm. We didn't find that as a really 
strong piece in our sample. Of course, we were a clinical sample, and a lot of the veterans had been clean and sober for many, many years. But there was a relationship between um, binge drinking and violence and and the number of drugs being used, uh, illegal drugs being used, and violence. So that was another risk factor in our, our sample. The other piece that was interesting for those veterans who reported uh, the intimate partner violence, we looked at, we asked them, when was it the worst for you in your relationship? When were you the most violent? And the pattern that emerged was they described that the worst of it was within about two years post-deployment. So those, and then of course, you know, some of these people have multiple deployments. So we had to look at it over deployments, but, um, but, but it, the, we did this, you know, we looked at the patterns and within a couple years that most of it clustered around really pretty close to post-deployment. That was a time also when they tended to be using more substance. And so, so those are risk factors in terms of severity and frequency of IPV that we found. The other thing that we found a high correlation was the level of post-traumatic stress disorder. So veterans who endorse more symptoms of PTSD also reported higher levels and frequency of IPV. Uh, that makes perfect sense. As, as a children, uh, as a child or caregiver or spouse, did were they included in your the spouse was included in your study um were the were there any questions related to children or discussions re- related to children and the trickle down effect of this violence we didn't specifically ask about that okay uh, obviously in some of their as they were talking about things in their relationship you know, the impact on children would come up but we didn't study that okay April, when you talked about the, some of the symptoms of PTSD, we had lists about five or six, um, <clears throat> which are familiar to our listeners. What what um, what connection did you draw between those symptoms and IPV? Well, what we noticed was, you know, certainly there's areas of overlap. Um, you know, a, a veteran may be driving recklessly or aggressively. That might be part of that risk taking that happens with PTSD. But we can also see that in IPV when it's done to scare or intimidate um, the victim or to get them to comply in some way. Mm-hmm. So what we were really looking for is um, these certain pattern behaviors where they would they would make threats. Um, I'll just give you an example. One of the um, one of the partners reported, you know, she said when, when we're um, arguing and he says, I've killed before, she said, what does that, what does that make you think? And so yeah. they would use, they would use certain things about their military time in terms of having killed before, uh, being capable of killing as a way to threaten and intimidate their partner. So in that case, you know, it came out really very focused towards frightening, you know, frightening the wife or frightening the girlfriend. And we asked them, we asked both the veterans and we asked their partners, um, is she afraid of you? And then we asked her, are you afraid of him? Mm-hmm. And at times they said, yes, she's afraid of me. And at times the wife said, yes, I'm afraid of him. 
The intimidation is is very powerful. Uh, it 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 exists on both sides. Um, talk also a little bit about the control issues because often with PTSD, especially in the earlier stages, perhaps with the drug use concomitantly, there is a need for control to stop this madness that's going on in their heads, this chaos. What about the control factor? Well, yeah, with PTSD, obviously substance use, that's kind of the oldest treatment on record for PTSD symptoms, alcohol and other things to, you know, just to help lessen the intensity of the symptoms. Um, what we found around control was, and then, then here's where it gets intertwined with caregiving. Um, the, you know, the, the spouses, the, the caregiving spouse is responsible to get the veteran to their appointments and make sure they're getting their medications. And, and one of the pieces of control that, that we saw that came out in the, the couple's narratives was where she would talk about that, well, she's responsible to make sure he's taking his medications right. He wouldn't even tell her necessarily what they were or if they'd been changed. And so there was that piece. And then she's responsible to make sure she's doing it correctly. So she's questioning him. Uh, she's, you know, looking at his meds and that sort of thing. And the the veteran would describe those kind of caregiving activities as triggers. And so the, the wives were really aware that that activity on their part was also seen as a trigger. You know, the veterans at times resented it. Um, they felt as though the wife was controlling because she was doing all these things for him and her caregiving activity. And they, they felt like, you know, they were being treated like a child and that she was controlling and that was a trigger for them. Yeah, it's like a downward spiral. Yes, and this the whole description of damned if you do, damned if you don't, uh -huh. right. 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 Came, came out because she felt very responsible as the caregiver to make sure he was, you know, getting his right meds and getting to appointments. And she had all these responsibilities, uh, caregiving responsibilities, and was resented for it. So then there's also a hyper-awareness on the part of the caregiver. Absolutely. And that can't play well into the relationship, correct? Correct, yes. Um, some of the caregivers and the partners in these, in these, in these couples describe developing almost a PTSD-like syndrome themselves, where they became hyper-aware of his mood hyper aware of his activities. And so they became very watchful. They, they talked about being protective of him, uh, not only in that caregiving role, being protective of him, but also protective of themselves. So, you know, we think of caregiving as this, this phenomenon where you're caring for the other out of love and empathy. But what we also saw emerge is this, this hyper-awareness, this hyper-protectiveness on the part of the partner out of self-care and out of self-preservation. Perfect way to stop. We're going on a short break. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
everyone knows you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. But who wants to catch a fly? Flies are squick and repulsive. Flies have two wings, while all other insects have four. And they beat their wings 200 times per second. That's faster than a hummingbird. Flies jump up and backwards when taking off with an average speed of 5 miles per hour. What's the word for that annoying buzzing sound flies make? Pretinency. Pestologists tell us that flies' favorite color is red. Flies have kinesophobia. That's the fear of movement. So simply hang a plastic bag filled with water to keep the flies away. My only question would be, would a fly without wings be called a walk? I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Women Voters reminds you that on Election Day, we are all equal. Please join your friends and neighbors by registering to vote and going to the polls November 8th. Visit www.vote411.org to find out who will be on your ballot and how the voting process works in your community. This election is about our future. And we all need to weigh in. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are continuing our discussion with Dr. April Gerlach about caregiving and intimate partner violence in October, the month of domestic violence awareness. Let's talk specifically, April, about the caregivers. You know, how, how are they resented by the veteran and how does this affect IPV? Well, yeah, this... Yeah, I always said in my clinical practice, I could tell how badly things were going at home by the proximity of the wife to the appointment. Mm -hmm. So if she came with him but stayed in the car, that things were probably not so bad. If she came and waited in the waiting room, then maybe things were a little more contentious at home. If she came into the appointment, then I knew we had a problem. And this is for, you know, wives and partners who who didn't normally come into the appointment because I had some who just regularly would come into the appointment. So I think that, um, you know, what happens is that when there's IPV now, I think there's a difference when there's not IPV, because I think what caregivers experience is as at home, you know, it's a different situation than maybe the veteran will present in their clinical appointment because they want to present, usually as doing better than maybe what their their caregiving spouse would say. But at home, you know. <laughs> right, we'll call it the game face. Yeah. Right. How are you doing? Yeah. Great. Right. It's I'm all good. I'm doing fine. Yeah. How's right. Are you remembering to take your meds? Yeah, no problem. You know, and she would say, this is when, when the wives would come in and they'd say, no, he's not. He's not taking his meds and, you know, maybe he's drinking again or whatever. So I think, you know, the situation is home at home is not always the same situation that is pre- that is presented to the to the medical provider. So there's that piece. And then there's the other piece that came out when there was IPV. And that was just this this need on the part of the caregivers to engage in these behaviors out of self-protection. And so there was that other piece where they became really hyper 
like we talked about, their hyper vigilance or their protectiveness out of out of their self protection. And so there's that piece that I don't think providers understand, especially if they don't even know if there's IPV. Well, April, quick question. Um, Maybe we weren't able to get down into this level uh, with your studies, but did you find that, you know, the, well, the caregiver and the, and the wounded warrior, the veteran, they have a, a, a close relationship and they're extremely intimate on the caregiving. And then they also have some bad sides too with the violence. But did you, were you able to see different levels of, of, of acceptance on both sides or did the caregivers feel like well this is a very rare circumstance for the most part things are okay or what was the spectrum that you were dealing with we saw a full spectrum and that was what was really interesting about this study is some of these couples were just absolutely remarkable in how they've dealt with really difficult situation because these veterans not only had PTSD, but they also had other kinds of medical issues and, you know, disabilities around other medical issues. And, and one of the things that we found for our really, we we called them our thriving couples, these couples that had had dealt with this in a remarkable way is um, how they communicated. And so, you know, we, we understand that veterans have reasons for not wanting to talk about their military experience or their trauma. And one of the questions we asked is, has he talked with you about any of his military experiences or his trauma or that sort of thing? There was a relationship between the when there was more communication about that, when they had talked about it, that they they had higher levels of what we call mutuality. So that was one of the things we measured is this bi-directional respect, bi-directional yeah. support, that sort of thing that you see in a couple relationship. Um, and it wasn't that they necessarily, because some of the partners didn't want to hear any details about their the military experience or the war zone. Woman said, woman said, I don't want to hear about all those blood and guts. You know, but what they had yeah. done is they talked about how they're going to talk about it. So as a couple, they mutually decided, how are we going to handle this material? Because the partners they're hyper aware that there's a problem. They live yeah. with this veteran. Yeah. One woman said she could tell he had a bad night because when he had nightmares, he smelled like warm maple syrup. And mm-hmm. she would say, so you had a bad night last night. And he said, yeah, I had a bad night. So, you know, they decided together as a couple how they were going to handle how they talked about that material and how they were going to handle it. Another thing that emerged was that that the the wife or the caregiving spouse had set up really good boundaries. And so she had, she had set up, you know, just, you know, what, what she was going to deal with and what she isn't. So, and in in terms of also, you know, doing things for herself and prioritizing some of her own self-care and her self-needs. So those were things that were evident in these couples that had, had really navigated this very difficult terrain well, around PTSD. Well, yeah. disability. And I can see why you're calling them thrivers because they're displaying a level of awareness and enlightenment that mm-hmm. I imagine is, is, you know, somewhat unusual. I mean, if they're to the point where they can discuss how they're going to talk about these issues, that takes um, real compassion on both sides. And also if the caregiver feels comfortable enough to talk about boundaries and what's okay and what's not, that's also a very mature 
relationship and situation, I would think the default, and I can relate to this to a certain degree for the veterans and, and, the, and the service members, is to just fall back on, I'm fine, or things are okay. And you kind of describe that with the, with the meetings where the wife or the spouse is either in the car or in the, in the appointment room. Um, it might be hard to get these conversations going. And in fact, I'm sure it's hard to get these conversations going to the level you're just describing now. Right. It, that is the default. But, you know, but, it's, but if they're going to be a, in a committed relationship for the long term, that's not okay because she knows it's things aren't okay. You right. know, she she lives there. They have to talk to each other, and right. and and you know, and the couples that had, you know, they they done it. They were doing it. Um, they did talk to each other, uh, and so you know, and I just relate back to my own experience because my husband's a two tour Vietnam veteran, and and when we met, actually our first date, he showed me pictures of himself in Vietnam. Now this was 1981. And veteran, Vietnam veterans were not self-identifying no. as veterans. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was probably a test for me just to see how I'd handle that. And mm -hmm. we're still married, so obviously I passed the test. <laughs> but I, I was aware that we talked a lot about Vietnam. And, of course, I was working for the VA, and then he then later worked for the VA. And sometimes Vietnam would come up every single day or every week. It just became part of our discussions over time. Yeah. So I became really aware of how do veterans handle talking about their combat experiences. And this this was a point of contention for some couples because veterans would say that they would use that material to distance their wife and sometimes scare her, you know, use it as a way to threat or intimidate. Yeah. And so that's how I really became aware of this isn't this is important that couples at least have agreed on how they want to handle that material in the context of their relationship. That's a very good point. I'm just curious, did you have an age and maturity spread throughout this study? Were these yes. just post 9-11 or did these include uh, other era veterans? Oh, it was the whole span. And we had five couples, World War II veterans. And so, Excellent. yeah, okay. I mean, the, the largest group were Vietnam veterans because that reflected our largest sample. But the second largest group were veterans of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And, um, and we had some people who were just back from deployments who really, you know, they were deploying back and forth. If they were in the reserves, National Guard, they were getting activated, deployed. They'd come back, they'd be a veteran, then they'd get activated again. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they're kind of back and forth between active duty status and veteran status. And so for, you know, for some of the couples, they had very recent deployments. And so it was a whole range. And that's really, I think, what made this such interesting research. More than interesting, extremely valuable since if you had 45% among the group that you were working with that displayed IPV, it, it really is critically important. Let's talk about the medical treatment. Does When there is incidence of IPV, presumably reported or known, does the VA take into consideration IPV with the PTSD treatment plan? And do they take into consideration making the caregiver an integral part of the care plan? Well, I, I think that's uh, almost a three-part question. Uh, for one thing, I think it depends on the medical provider. 
uh, in terms of their awareness of whether IPV is present or not and how it plays out for this particular couple and how it impacts caregiving. So if it's a provider who has that awareness and who has already opened the door for those discussions, I mean, I did with the veterans that I saw, we had really open, frank discussions about, you know, any violence or thoughts of self-harm. And we talk about, you know, we strategize and do a safety plan, both for the veteran and if, you know, if, the, if their wife or, you know, sometimes it was girlfriends would accompany him, then we would jointly do a safety plan. So I, so first of all, I think it depends on the awareness of the medical provider the VA, most of the VAs across the nation do have IPV coordinators. So, you know, there are people in place to, to be able to provide education and, and backup or at least support to medical providers in terms of giving them information. Um, across the board, I would say if we're looking at both, you know, civilian where they're not dealing directly with military-related issues, um, and VA, that mostly providers are, are not highly aware of this, of this as a problem or highly aware of it in the, you know, the patients that they see and don't usually incorporate it in the treatment plan. Ugh. Because from our experience, when uh, someone is called in, in the civilian world, in the military world, but a civilian uh, police department or somebody is called for a quote domestic the game face is put on I'm a veteran and they go away is that the point of highest risk after a report well oh, okay that's a really that's a we can finish after the break I know we're coming up on a break but you know maybe you could start it well, it's, you know, there's so many variables that um, impact highest risk. And that's a whole nother discussion because I think it involves impulsivity, things that will increase impulsivity. So obviously, if there's binge drinking or substance, that could be something that would impact impulsivity. Um, the part um, behaviors on the part of the victim in terms of her trying to increase her autonomy or leaving the relationship as a time of great risk. So there's, and, and, and systems not responding appropriately. Yes, that does increase risk because there's a message to both that okay. the system isn't going to respond. Sorry. We'll continue right after the break. You're listening to military network radio and we'll be right back. We're military network radio and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Salt is in nearly everything we eat, and many times it makes food taste so delicious. Even though the 2010 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends limiting sodium to less than 2,300 milligrams a day, Men's Health Magazine states that the average American takes in about 3,300 milligrams of sodium every single day. Your body needs some sodium to function properly because it helps transmit nerve impulses. It influences the contraction and relaxation of muscles, and it helps maintain the right balance of fluids in your body. 
but most of us are getting far more sodium than is recommended. Check out the sodium content in the foods you are eating and limit soy sauce, Parmesan cheese, bacon, smoked salmon, ramen noodles, and salami. It's time to kick the habit of too much sodium. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We were talking on the break about the importance of, obviously, reporting is something that you can't fix a problem unless it's reported. But on the other hand, there can be great risk in reporting, as we mentioned prior to the break. Um, Justin, did you want to go further into that? Yeah, please. And April, I, I'm excited about your book, and, and I know our listeners are too, because it sounds like we're all going to learn from the in-depth conversations and studies you had about what works and what doesn't and how to really navigate what's going on in our personal lives and, and this important issue. As far as that's concerned, as Linda mentioned, there it can be a, a tough decision uh, when it comes to reporting if you're the caregiver because there's a lot of ramifications that could happen from there, physical, financial, emotional, um, et cetera. So what have you seen as, as some pitfalls or some things to look out for or things that have worked out well for the caregivers when they realize they need to report something? Well, I think... Um for caregiver when there's IPV that, you know, their first priority is safety, their safety and their children's safety. And I, I think anytime there's IPV, I would encourage uh, that person, a, a victim who's also a caregiver to meet with a victim's advocate first and talk about resources. They do safety planning, all that sort of thing and have that in mind before they necessarily report to, let's say, a medical provider, because a medical provider may not have any understanding of, of how to respond to that whatsoever. Now, in our research, we only had one incident where, and we interviewed these couples separately, so they didn't know necessarily what one was saying, yeah. but we had a couple that talked about what they talked about when they got home. Sure. And so we had one negative incident where, you know, where the veteran became very upset and then started talking about feeling suicidal after what he heard his girlfriend actually had talked about. So, you know, that was a large sample where it mostly there were not negative consequences for talking about this. And I would say in my clinical experience, there wasn't. However, I would caution 
caregivers to the, the time that it can be negative is when the veterans in their medical appointment and the caregivers reporting this to the medical provider in the context of that appointment, especially if everybody is caught unaware. Because what I found is that the veteran then felt shamed, you know, that yeah. they had this special relationship with their medical provider. And now all of a sudden their caregiver is reporting this negative thing about them. Yeah. And they became very angry about that. That was a time of, I think, re increased risk for everybody. Increased risk for violence at home in terms of IPV, but also increased risk on the veterans part if they're suicidal. And then, of course, with IPV, anytime you're suicidal, you could be homicidal as well. So I would really caution a caregiver about reporting it in front of the veteran during a medical appointment. If the medical provider is asking the caregiver to do something that she feels puts her more at risk, she could talk to the provider about that if she feels safe enough to do that. Sure. But safety is, you know, is the big question mark in terms of how prepared is that provider to deal with that, with you, that you, question. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned going to a, a victim advocate at the very beginning, and maybe this is common knowledge in the caregiver community. I'm just not sure. Uh, how do the caregivers find these people who they should be talking to? Well, yeah, that's a good question because it's, it's different on a military mm -hmm post or base than it is in the VA because the VA is civilian. I mean, I know it's the VA, but you know, yeah, they sure. are civilians. Sure. <laughs> <At Sure. that laughs> so people get that confused sometimes. Um, but, you know, uh, military posts and base have the whole family advocacy program right. and, and victim advocates. There's a whole network. I mean, I mean, more once, I mean, more once you leave the military where it's not as so obvious. Okay. Good question. Um, there, you know, they could they can look in their community. They could, if the VA has an IPD coordinator, they could actually talk to that person, you know, in particular about what the resources are in their community. Okay. That might be a good place to start within the VA is to contact that person, talk with them privately about what resources are available. As a medical provider, you know, we can always give people information, and I would have wives call me and I would give them information about what the resources are in the community. They can also, you know, call, call, the, call the DV hotlines, um, the 1-800 numbers uh, for, for their area to find out what sort of resources are available for them. Okay. Okay. You know, April, the, the cases that I'm aware of, um, oftentimes if it is made note of, whether in a doctor's appointment or separately, the referral is generally to an anger management course. Now, there can be resentment that they've got to go to anger management. That's, again, the shaming that you talk about. Or that doesn't really get to the root of the problem. Is there any concrete step or steps that the VA is taking in order to change the culture such that reporting something like this doesn't have these risk um, capabilities that it appears to have right now? Well, that's a good question because anger management is the fallout. I just used to run anger management classes and it's pretty apparent when there's somebody who is domestically violent in your class, 
that anger doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. I mean, they might be angry and there are certain people who, who are intimately violent and demonstrate the anger, but it's not necessarily um, always. And it's really not the point. I mean, the point is there's this other pattern of coercive, controlling, intimidating behaviors that really entrap a victim in the relationship. And so that's just not addressed in anger management classes. And I would say the VA has, has always had readiness to deal with reports of imminent danger. So there's always been that. What isn't really at part of the system nationwide is a, you know, an education and a, um, the, the network to deal with this internally. And, and not all VAs have the resources to deal with it internally. Some of them have offender intervention programs, many don't. And so they have to refer veterans to the community for let's say batter, uh, batters intervention program. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you know, they're, they are asking about um, people experiencing violence. So they're getting up to speed in responding to that. But if you're asking about experiences with violence, really it just kind of opens the door for reports of both experiencing and using violence. And if, if a VA is not ready to deal with it internally, they really need to know they have to have a system in place where they're going to deal with these reports in a way that they have safety as the bottom line for both the veteran and their partner. Do they? Um, well, I, I think it varies uh, across VAs. I think some VAs do have. Uh, a system in place for for that, but again, it depends on if it's reported to a medical provider. It depends on how ready they are. Do they know what's in place? Um, that's the nice thing about the IPV coordinators is they actually could turn to somebody and find out. Well, what do we do? I just heard this. Now, what do I do? Um, I am encouraging settings, healthcare settings, to to have a protocol in place so that when they get these reports, there are certain questions that they ask to determine, they have to determine, is there IPV? And if there is, am I working with a victim or aggressor? And then if there is, what are the dangerousness elements here? And is this a situation, you know, if there's not highly, if it's not highly dangerous, but it's important, then knowing what the resources are to direct that person to get some help if it's if it's imminently dangerous, you obviously you have to have protocol in place and how you deal with that. Yeah, it seems like um, it seems like in this day and age, all the VAs, each VA is different, but it seems like each VA should be on top of this because we know how prevalent PTSD is. But um, there's not a whole lot we can do about that right now if they don't. I'd like to shift back to uh, back down to the micro level, able to your studies. And when we talk about um, physical aggression, as, as it escalates, what did your research suggest as coping mechanisms within the family? Oh, well, that's a, that's a very difficult question. Um, you know, in some of these couples, there had, has had been really bad violence and has been violence over the years. Mm -hmm. What both the veterans and the partners described as helpful in terms of really um, curbing the physical aggression was all the usual interventions, the PTSD treatment, the alcohol and 
drug treatment. All of that they identified was helpful in curbing the physical violence, but they but it wasn't helpful in terms of stopping the psychological abuse. So yeah. so you know so the intimidation and the threats and that sort of thing were still there, and those usual interventions were not helpful with that. And I, you know, I ran a batter's intervention program for seven years for active duty military and military veterans. And, and what they talked about is that they didn't have to be physically violent, that they could use threats or looks or things like that to frighten a victim. And so, so, I mean, it's important piece that's being missed that you really don't get to in just like anger management yeah. uh, in just your standard interventions. You really have to get to these other things that are going on that really still frighten the partner. Thank you so much for bringing up the gaps. I'd love to give you time to tell our listeners where they can find out more information. And I'm sorry to cut you off, Justin. You can finish off at the end. Okay. Well, it, it, it depends on what information they're looking for in the you know, in your own communities. Obviously, um, you can you know you can go on the internet. I'm sorry, I don't have all of those resources right out here in front of me. The 1-800 numbers that um, the domestic right. violence hotlines mm-hmm. are, are good ways to both get information as well as uh, find out what the resources are in the community. Uh, or uh, if, if we've got any healthcare providers listening, uh, going to Futures Without Violence is an excellent uh, web source for healthcare response to domestic violence. For those who are interested in more information around the intersection of military and IPV, Battered Women's Justice Project has an entire section on military with videos, training modules. Uh, Anybody can go in and review that information. You don't have to be in a particular role or setting. Caregivers can go in and, and access that information. April, thank you so much for being with us today. We will have you back another time. Thank you again. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll talk with you next week. www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your